0: So the real question actually is, do we want to be reproducing in that way or not? Just take a moment to appreciate the fact that with the increasing lifespan that we have, we've basically reached the point at which females spend 50% of their lives in the menopause. Ooh, that's a really interesting question. Are male and female brains different? There's nothing special about us. And
1: it feels so uncomfortable because... Do you think artificial wombs could be a reality in the next 20 years? I worry about this all the time. I think that there's two aspects to this. Welcome to Mother Podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Ganesh Taylor, my friend and a molecular biologist who uses cutting-edge technology to understand how our reproductive systems are built In this episode, we talk about the mechanisms of sex determination, ovarian reserve, synthetic embryos, artificial wombs, egg freezing, and what our pursuit for reproductive innovation can teach us about the human nature, life, and the universe. So you've done quite a bit of research on the topic of sex determination. Can you talk about how does nature actually decide what sex the embryo is going to be?
0: When the sperm meets the egg, depending on what DNA is within the sperm, that embryo, that one, that single-celled embryo, will have a genetic sex, most likely. Because females, we're XX. Males are XY. So all of our eggs can only ever carry X chromosomes, whereas sperm, 50-50. Some carry X, some carry Y, and depending on what they bring to the egg and fertilize it, if you have a Y chromosome, you are genetically at least predisposed to becoming a male. So primary sex determination, as we call it, the moment where this DNA gets read and meaningfully interpreted for the first time. This is a really naff analogy that's just come to me, but it's a bit like, imagine your parents had bought a load of specialism textbooks for you when you were first born and they were in your room for like when you were a baby, when you were a kid, when you were a toddler, like you're not reading them, right? Because you're too young to look at them. But then there comes a moment in your educational journey where it becomes relevant to start reading these books. And sex determination is a bit like that. So these chromosomes, these pieces of DNA are there from the moment that egg is fertilized. But initially, during early embryonic development, the embryo has other things to be doing, like developing a head and uh, like critical organs. And in humans, it's around six weeks or so of development. So there's six weeks of other stuff that happens. And then at that point, there's this moment that we call sex determination, when they turn to those sex chromosomes, to the X and the Y, and they say, okay, what have we got? And what does that mean we should be doing? Okay, so there are those chromosomes there. What does that actually mean? Like how do those cells actually take that information and translate that into something that we then later on meaningfully understand as being male or female? So in this context, what happens is the embryo will build like a rough gonad structure. A gonad is a technical term for an organ that holds germ cells is the word for it. So cells that can go on to make sperm or eggs. And so a gonad can hold those kinds of cells, those special cells that need to be there for a long time. So it can be either a testis or an ovary, both of them are considered to be a gonad. And so what happens at primary sex determination is those cells that are like roughly organized into a gonad structure, like this can become either one of these two organs, they turn to their DNA and they say, okay, what have we got here? And if they have a Y chromosome, they're like, okay, looks like we should be building a testis. And then they build the testis. And then as those special cells arrive, they provide them with the storage facility that they need to become a male, like testis, right? Or in the other direction, if it's an X, they'll start building an ovary. Those special germ cells, when they arrive, they get told, okay, welcome, you are going to become an oocyte, you're going to become an egg one day. That's how this works. Welcome to hotel ovary.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Okay. So even though the embryo knew from day one or day zero, whether it's going to be male or female, it's six weeks into development in the womb when the cells are actually starting to act on it, right?
0: Yeah. to like meaningfully doing something with that information. So the information is there from the moment the egg meets the sperm, but it doesn't get used in any way to like build structures that we recognize as being male or female until just after that point. So first, the ovaries or the testes commit to becoming one of those two things. And then the rest of the secondary structures that we know and recognize start to to be patterned, to really be built to shape into one of the two options that they have and the matching external genitalia. So 99.9% of people fall into one of these two categories where the gonads, the reproductive system, the external genitalia all sort of align with what we would classically call male and female, basically.
1: And what drives sex determination at that early stage? Like, are there evolutionary trends in our DNA? Or does our environment or culture or society or stress level at the time of inception actually have any influence on the sex of the baby? So that's a really interesting question.
0: In some ways, it's already written, right? Depending on what sperm arrives, that DNA is there. And if all is well, it should just follow the instructions it's given. So actually, a lot of embryo development in some ways is on almost on autopilot. You could think of it that way. Whatever the DNA is, it just follows that and it does what it needs to do. That's one way of looking at it. But sometimes there can be mutations or issues with the DNA. And when that happens, it doesn't really matter what DNA is there. Because if it can't use that information the way it was intended to, you can end up with quite different outcomes sometimes that's not an intentional way of having a different outcome but that can happen in human beings as well it's it's very much genetic based. And we have what's called a genetic uh, mechanism of sex determination. So it's to do with what DNA you carry within your sperm and reproductive cells, basically. But let us not forget, there are many different organisms on planet Earth. And there are therefore many different ways actually of setting up these sex determination mechanisms, as we call them. So for example, famously, there are environmental sex determination mechanisms. So where the temperature of the environment around the organism and the developing egg can influence what sex the offspring are. So turtles are the classic one, for example. Basically, there's a relationship between temperature and the outcome of the sex. And actually, it leads to really interesting situations. And if you think about it in those environmental sex determination contexts, with global warming, it's leading to issues because increasing temperatures is leading to increasing numbers of one sex over the other in the population, which then leads to problems.
1: Speaking of animals, I heard in one of your talks about these experiments where scientists made genetic modifications to adult mice and as a result um they they were able to change the the actual reproductive organs of the mice like how is that possible to actually change sex of the animal after birth that sounds insane and yeah can you talk about that
0: yeah that's it's So when I was talking to my boss about my interest in understanding how genes instruct cells during embryonic development, I think it's fascinating, right? How you can go from being one cell with just a bunch of DNA and what it does with that information tells it what kind of structures to build. I think that's pretty wild already. And then we were talking about sex determination and he was saying, we have all these interesting genes and We think these days of genes as building these kinds of molecular mechanisms, like in the same way that we think of circuits or literal mechanisms, like an engine or something within a car. We're starting to see how genes work like that to build structures that have particular functions and stuff. And we were discussing that. And so... In that moment of sex determination, when I say I'm interested in understanding how those cells actually start interpreting that that information for the first time, it means I study the genes, like what genes are actually being expressed because of the chromosomes they have and what does that actually mean? What do they do? What do those genes do? And it turns out very much, um, there are some genes that are very much conserved, we would say. So there are genes that do the same thing. In many different species through the evolutionary tree. So we call that conservation. So if something is like a spanner is a spanner regardless of where you use it, right? If you're rich, you're poor, it doesn't Mm. matter which country you're in, it works (laughs) the same way. So you can think of it that way. Okay. And there are these genes that are always found to be expressed in the supporting cells of the testis and a gene that is always found to be expressed in the supporting cells of the ovary. And basically, they, it was shown probably about ten over ten years ago now in mice that these genes, if you remove them, so a single gene within, say, the testis of an uh, adult mouse, when it's an adult already, you can give it this drug, and it can lead to the sort of you trip a genetic mechanism that you've rigged up around the gene that you're targeting, and the gene disappears off gets cut out. So it can't do what it needs to do anymore. And then these cells just forget that they were the cells of a testis and just go, oh, okay, I guess I'm the cell of an ovary now. And then they start behaving as such. And the converse experiment is true as well. So you can take the cells of an adult uh, ovary, like adult female mouse, and tell the cells in the ovary, okay, you've forgotten that you belong in an ovary now because I've taken this one gene out and they will start they will become remarkably similar to the cells of a testis and it's completely wild i don't know of any mechanism like that in biology typically we think of cells as making decisions and they make a decision like it's a that's a commitment for life it's not often that you get like a bone cell that's decided you know what i'm not feeling it one gene's gone missing i'm going to go be a skin cell now right they're not like us millennials they don't reinvent themselves <laughs> cells aren't like that right but <laughs> (laughs) cells of the gonad clearly are. And so this is one of the big questions in my field at the moment is, okay, well, that seems to be the case in mice at least. And we know that human beings have the same genes, but they might not be set up in the exact same mechanism. So they might not have quite the same function. And so my work has, in part, over the last seven years, involved trying to understand how does that work and is that the same in other animals in the evolutionary tree,
1: basically. Fascinating. I also have to ask, what is the goal of gene editing? And what is the goal of trying to genetically modify human sex?
0: When we edit genes, there's two different broad classes of goals that you should consider. So there's the edits and the things that we do for the purposes of research. So to simply understand, to better understand what is happening. And then there's the types of edits that we do to for clinical purposes, for curative reasons, with a very different kind of goal in mind, if that makes sense. So in my line of work, we're trying to understand. It's a knowledge-driven activity. Our goal is to understand something. We use editing More to do, you can think of it as molecular dissection. We're just trying to understand how these mechanisms work. What does that do? What's the point of this? That's a very different type of editing to I have something in mind that I want to do to this embryo because I want a different clinical outcome. And just to be really clear about it, when you think about the sex of an embryo, we already live in a world where if you go through IVF, at least, it's not always legal in every country, but it is possible to do test embryos. And that's very routine in IVF contexts. And so when you test them, you can tell if they're male or female. And so you can actually select which ones you put back in. In America, for example, that is legal. So people do that quite readily. In the UK, you're not allowed to do sex selection unless it's under very specific clinical purposes. Bizarrely, you wouldn't actually need to do very much editing of these kinds of sex mechanisms at the early stage anyway, because you can just Mm. pick the embryo you're at after. The only context under which I could possibly imagine using the knowledge that we gain to change embryos before they've even become babies would be if in an IVF context, you had tested all the embryos and found that they all carried some kind of mutation that would lead to clinical issues. Well, then you could use an editing technique like CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing that I'm sure everyone will have heard a lot about. That's when a technique like that could come in quite handy because if all the embryos have this issue in their DNA, then you can use these editing techniques to effectively correct these kinds of mutations. Of course, you need to have the knowledge to know how to correct it, right? You need to understand how it works before you can start playing around with it.
1: Actually, while we're on that topic, I also wanted to ask you, there has recently been some media buzz. I think there was a group of Israeli scientists that were able to create a synthetic embryo. So without actually using sperm or an egg. Um, Can you talk about how that works and what that means? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it's not just the Israeli group. There's There's a couple of big groups and big players out there. Cambridge, Caltech also have been heavily involved. And there's been a lot of news about it recently. So for the sake of your listeners, what these embryo models are, This is totally wild. When the sperm meets the egg, it makes a single-celled embryo. That embryo is what you would call a, a stem cell. It's a true stem cell. That single cell can become any part of both the baby or the placenta. That's what makes it a true, what we would call a totipotent stem cell. Totipotent coming from the Greek word meaning all potency. It can do everything. It's amazing. That's how all life normally starts. So in the case of these embryo models, What has actually happened is that researchers have taken just stem cells, they can come from embryos, or they can actually, thanks to another innovation from a different field, can be what we call reprogrammed stem cells. Because all the cells in your body carry the same amount of DNA in them, even though they're doing different things, they have the same DNA, you can reprogram cells to forget what they were doing and to revert back to a stem cell-like state. Totally wild, completely insane if you stop and think about it. So scientists have been um, trying to understand how well that reprogramming goes. Can you really make them forget or do do they still have flashbacks to their past lives on a molecular level? Is that part of what's going on with them? And what they did in this context, and it was a bit of a surprise, I think, to everyone, was I said, stem cells, right, fine. But there are different flavors of stem cells. And during early development, when you go from being a single cell to being a group of cells to being a few more cells, there comes a point at which you become like three, three or four different flavors of stem cells, you'd say. So a cell that can become any part of the placenta, for example, or a cell that can become any part of the embryo. Because if you think about it, the placenta doesn't become part of your life, but it it's formed from your cells. It's important. And so what scientists did was they got a few different flavors of stem cells and just put them together in a bowl, literally like a tiny bowl, but a bowl. And they just organized themselves into these structures that look really remarkably like embryos. They're just like, they just organize. And it was surprising and amazing. And then they just continue. They're like, oh, I guess this is what we're doing now. And what's cool about this is it's reproducible, relatively reproducible. And so people are trying to understand what that means about, well, it's a research tool. So what does that mean about these cells? What is it about the different flavors of stem cells that mean that they know that this is how they should organize themselves? It's something within them. Remember how I was saying early development is almost nothing to do with what's going on the outside. They're not taking instruction from the outside. They take nutrition and things can impact them, sure but they're on their own mission. And so what's cool about these embryo models or these synthetic embryos is that they allow scientists to get an insight into what's happening when these cells are like autopiloting their way into whatever it is that they're doing, right?
1: That's really interesting. I mean, I do have a hard time separating research from practice. Like surely at some point, somebody's going to be like, wow, if this is possible, so why don't we just make this like an available reproductive technology? Do you think we're far away from that? I should say at this point, I'm going to speak very candidly as a person
0: and as an individual. Of course, it's inevitable that like, when you see something like this, you'll think, oh, wow, okay, hang on a minute. So we can take a skin biopsy, turn it into a stem cell, turn those stem cells into the three or four different flavors of stem cells they need, mix them together and build an embryo. Like, And then they grow and develop and look like embryos. There's a lot of things that still need to happen. This has only been about two weeks' worth of growth that they've been able to get, and nine months is a long time to try and replicate. But the reality is people have already tried with the the monkey stem cell-based versions of these sort of embryo models. They have already tried implanting them back into monkeys, and they don't survive, actually. You want a good model, it needs to do what the other thing does. And again, yes, absolutely, people are thinking about it. How do you define an embryo? What's the difference between an embryo and an embryo model? Where does that line lie? And having those kinds of conversations. And I guess I think the important thing to say here is, I think that I think it's very easy to forget that we are the people who make and use the tools for whatever goal we want to achieve. The tools don't determine the goal, we build the tools to help us achieve the goal. So the real question actually is, do we want to be reproducing in that way or not? How many of us would want to do it that way actually? Or maybe actually, we'd be surprised to find out that people don't just want to go get a cheek swab done and then get a baby delivered one day in the future. Just to abstract this thing to the absolute future, right? Complete. Some people would say utopian, some people would say dystopian, but that's the question, right? How many of us want what and why? And then, okay, are we going to go after that goal or not?
1: Hmm. What is your take on human population size and population growth?
0: I think that, in general something that I have learned looking at many facets of embryonic growth and development and biological systems is biology is all about finding homeostasis it's about finding a balance there is definitely always this growth thing that happens right all organisms go through a growth period some of them faster some of them slower but ultimately all of all organisms on life I think I could say this quite reliably ultimately find a balance of maintaining themselves but not growing unencumberedly, if that's even a word. And I feel like we've reached that point, actually, where we now as human beings have to try and figure out, okay, maybe unmitigated growth at all times isn't the way forward any further. We've done a lot of growing, we've done pretty good here, now what happens, right? Like elephants don't keep getting bigger and bigger. Trees don't keep getting bigger and bigger. It doesn't matter what kind of organism you look at. They go from small, they grow, they get bigger, they reach a certain level, then they interface with their networks, whatever that is, and then they find a way of coexisting. And I think that's, yeah, I think that that's actually more what I'm concerned about rather than our population growth per se. It's that.
1: interesting. Okay. So now let's turn to a different area of your research, which is a reserve. Tell me, what is this reserve and what are you hoping to find there? So I
0: told you about those cells that help build the ovary and like hotel ovary and how they welcome in the oocytes and they're like, come on in, this is where you're going to be living. We'll look after you. So- they form these follicles. And what's really interesting to me is the fact that once they form those follicles, they sit there. That group of eggs in those follicle structures, they sit there. And that's what we call the ovarian reserve. And it's a set number in humans, in females. That's how it is. You get your lot. That's how it is. Unlike sperm, they which can keep turning over and there might be some aging, but it's not quite the same. They have stem cells, they turn over. That's how it is for them. Not so much for the ovary. And so this ovarian reserve gets formed during development, basically, and then it sits there. So you get your set number at birth. And um, I think I told you this before, the numbers totally blow my mind. So by the time the average female baby is born, there's about one to two million eggs in the reserve. By the time they reach puberty, in fact, you're down to half that number. So half a million, 500,000. And then after puberty comes this time where these eggs actually get like functionally used, right? They get turned into something that we recognize as the menstrual cycle or a monthly opportunity to get pregnant. Now, how does that happen? Because these eggs leave the ovarian reserve. And once you leave the reserve, that's it. Once you get up and go, you either going to get ovulated or you are lost. And there are a lot of casualties out there. Let's put it that way. For every egg that is ovulated, it's estimated that 500 to 1,000 eggs leave the ovarian reserve. It certainly made me think quite differently about my periods, I have to say. Every month I'm like, well done you, and sorry for everyone else that, that got lost on the way. Oh my goodness. But aside from my own personal experience of that, intellectually what I find really interesting and the question that I find most fascinating is the fact that we don't really understand at all Why do the follicles that leave the reserve, when they do, is there a signal that says, okay, it's your turn to go. You've waited here for 20 years, 30 years, whatever it is. Today is your day. Get growing. Like, how does that happen? What is that signal? Is it, how does that work? And you'd think that would be a really basic question that we should know the answer to, but we don't. That's the thing that I'm starting to hone in on. I want to understand what the signal is that tells follicles, okay, it's time to go. And specifically, I really want to understand about those supporting cells, those su- cells around the egg. How do they get there? What sets them apart from other cells within the body? and how do they know what they're doing? In life, I'm always interested in understanding how the manager of a a sports team functions and what they think. To me, that's what these supporting cells are like. They're the managers. What are they doing here? What are they saying? What is the mechanism that they're using to achieve these things that they're achieving? What is it that they say to the eggs when they're like, okay, it's your time. We've waited all this time. Your moment to shine, potentially, maybe. You have a one in in a thousand chance. (laughs) Off you go
1: let's say you have an answer to that question. Let's say you know what the trigger, what the mechanism is, and you understand it. What's next? What's the bigger picture? What would be the meaning of that discovery? Absolutely. So I told you, the ovarian reserve is a finite number.
0: Once you leave the reserve, there's no going back. They leave in waves, and there's a relationship between those waves and having a menstrual cycle. But when the reserve is spent, you go into the menopause average person, female, goes into the menopause around the age of 50. If you can understand the rate, the mechanism by which those follicles leave the ovarian reserve, you might be able to change the rate at which they leave that reserve. If your reserve is small, you go into the menopause earlier. Well, we can't change the number of, at this point in time, it would be quite difficult to do that also in humans because that gets set during development, during pregnancy, basically. But if you can slow down the rate at which they get released from the reserve and spent, if you could just push back the menopause by five to ten years even, just take a moment to appreciate the fact that with the increasing lifespan that we have, we've basically reached the point at which females spend 50% of their lives in the menopause. And the menopause, I recently got told, you can't just say, oh, the menopause, and assume that everyone understands what that really means. This is not just, oh, yeah, you have some mood swings and some hot flashes and, oh, okay, that's it, done. No. The menopause is a substantially different hormonal baseline of existence. It changes your risk of cardiovascular disease. It changes your risk of developing osteoporosis and bone density. And again, we're thinking about this in our 30s being like, okay, so bone density, what's the big deal? Reduced bone density is the difference between I stubbed my toe, I tripped over and ow that hurt. And in 50 years time, having genuine complicated surgeries and actually putting my life at risk because my bones won't heal, I'll have to go to surgery, all these other risks that follow. So don't bring your youthful hubris to this moment when you think, okay, well, Bone density. What is that? Who cares? Because it's really important in your later life.
1: I love that. Longevity is such a big topic. Right now, healthy aging is such a big topic. And most of the information on the internet doesn't really seem to differentiate between men and women. What you're talking about really feeds into the female lens on longevity. And I know scientists are, well, many female scientists are working on new options for women and understanding mechanisms of menopause and even figuring out if we can safely delay it. But I've never heard actually someone put it that way, that actually we live 50% of our life in menopause. That's quite wild. I've, I've never had it put to me that way that bluntly.
0: If you enter the menopause at the age of 50 on average, and most of us will be living to about 100 on average, that's literally half of our lives.
1: And so talking about genetics and gene editing again, so if a variant reserve is something that is determined genetically, like how many eggs we have, is it something that can also be altered genetically? Ooh, that's a really interesting question. I don't know that we know the answer to
0: that fully. There are known differences between like different species of mouse model that we use in labs and like how many follicles they have in their reserve. Like there can be differences, let's say. Do we know what those genes or those variants most likely are going to be? I don't think we know that. And there are still there are many labs actually on earth trying to understand how that first number of follicles in the reserve is set, because actually that one to two million that I told you at birth comes from a maximum initial number of five to six million during development. So many follicles are lost and we don't fully understand if that's like a quality control check or anything like that. So there's a lot of effort to try and understand this. The answer to your question is, in short, is I don't know it could be the case. I would imagine so. I'm choosing to come at it at the sort of, okay, well, let's just tackle the decline rather than tackling the, the initial number issue, let's say. For example, if you're born with one to two million, but by puberty, you're down to half a million, you've lost half of your follicles before you've even started being able to reproduce. I don't know that anyone understands why that happens. I've asked a fair few number of scientists at this point and everyone's just, eh, meh, it just happens. And 50% of our lives might be in the menopause, but like, you lose half of your reserve before you even start menstruating. And then, just to make this even more shocking, these days, the average age of first menses is dropping. Like, It's down to, let's say, an average of 10. I think it depends a little bit around where on earth you are and the amount of calorie abundance that the children are exposed to. But from the age of 10 to 50 is 40 years, right? So we still actually get about 40 years worth of reproductive output. But most people don't start talking, at least the people that I'm exposed to in in the UK and in the academic communities, most people only start thinking about reproducing when they're in their 30s, right? AKA 20 years out of the 40 years aka halfway, through, through that time span, do we start being like, oh, hey, should we do something about this? Which is also a little bit shocking.
1: So we've talked about egg quantity in the reserve. So the fact that we're born with a certain number of eggs and then we release them throughout our lifetime. Is there such a thing as quality of ovarian reserve? Like, could you be born with better egg quality? And could that have an influence on the rate at which you like lose or release the eggs throughout life? Is that a thing? So, I don't know about losing less of them, but definitely
0: the quality of the reserve is one way of looking at it. So, I told you that a follicle is an egg and it's supporting cells my interest is very much in the supporting cells because that's just that's the bit that i think of them as the managers and all that sort of stuff but actually your managers only as good as the team itself the raw quality there and there's a, obviously there are many people who study the eggs the oocytes themselves and try to understand how aging affects them because it does that's known when we talk about the 35 year age limit that you'll hear a lot about, if you want to have kids, you want to do that before you're 35. This is like a number that gets thrown around a lot. That number actually relates to the increase after that point. So 36 onwards, your probability of having chromosomal abnormalities coming from substantially coming from the egg increases, aka your eggs have sat around for such a long time, they've taken damage. And so that's where the issues are coming in. So there's definitely an issue of quality that, for example, as well, people have shown that there's no actual issue with women in their 40s carrying pregnancies. Sure, there's some additional complications, but they can carry them. But it's the egg quality itself that that is the restrictive aspect to this thing. So if you take a donor egg, from someone who is 25 years old and put it into a female who's 45 years old, the pregnancy is just as likely to continue. So it's not actually about the uterus or all of that stuff necessarily. It, there's a lot of interest in how does time affect the egg quality as well.
1: So this is where egg freezing comes in. What is your take on egg freezing?
0: Yeah. What is my take on it? My take on it, pragmatically, is ironic that nobody can afford it until they're at the age at which their eggs are already (laughs) like touch and go. (laughs) That's the reality. What 20-year-old has the money? to? Not everyone has it. So that's my practical comment on it recently in the uk they changed the legislation as well i don't know if you knew about this but there used to be a 10-year limit on storing eggs in this country which means that even if you were lucky enough to get the money exactly yeah do that math in your head if you were lucky enough to in your 20s have someone to pay for you to have your eggs frozen down by the like 10 years later you would have had to have thrown them out so they've changed that limit now so that's that's another good thing at least The only thing I would say about egg freezing is it's not an easy process in general and means that you have to do IVF at the other end of it. And I think a lot of people forget that. And IVF, again, is cost. It is not easy either. And I think it's fair to say, and the last time I checked the stats at least, it's one in four rounds of IVF results in a live birth. If I could go back and I had the money, absolutely. Who wouldn't put that insurance policy in place? But my point is, the insurance policy isn't just the egg freezing. The insurance policy then has to be okay, here's my money for four rounds of IVF, plus all the additional bits I may or may not need, plus the storage cost, plus the egg retrieval, plus the egg acquisition money. So if I'd have had that, you're damn right I would have done it. But the problem is at this point, I'm thinking, do I just do it myself or do I go through the IVF route? It's a different calculation to do when you get this close to the event horizon, basically.
1: Absolutely. And what about men? Is there like a sperm reserve? Is there a sperm quality change with age? Is there like an equivalent of male biological clock when it comes to fertility? Yes, there is.
0: Yes. They don't get off scot-free. They think they do, but they don't. I read a fascinating paper some years ago now talking about acquisition of what's called selfish mutations in sperm. Sperm is meant to be really highly variable diverse. It's meant to be super genetically diverse from the same individual. And one of the things that happens with age is that these sperm stem cells take damage, they get mutations. And then in the same way that like, uh, worried about saying this now, but I'm going to say it as best I can, how cancer cells, they get damaged and then they grow too much. And like that there's a relationship between taking damage and overgrowth. That thing can happen as well. So the damaged sperm stem cells take over the niche a little bit. And so it diminishes the overall diversity of the sperm, which is not necessarily the best thing for the babies basically coming out the other end. And there's lots of other research attempts into looking into the incidence of different diseases, in particular things like autism and things like that, and the association with older parents, specifically older fathers. I'm not an expert in that stuff, but there's a lot going on there trying to unpick the the impact. I recently watched a show, in fact, so this is in terms of timelines, it takes three months for a, a sperm stem cell to make a bunch of sperm. That's the technical term, bunch of sperm. <laughs> <I> love it, <laughs> but <laughs> heard it here first. <laughs> but the point is, yeah. So it means that if you want to ensure that you have the highest quality sperm these days, there's a lot of recommendations for things and modifications you can make for your lifestyle. And so long as you sustain them for three months, you'll see the impact of your changes. So, I watched this show where they made, they did sperm counts on these three, I think they were comedians actually. And then they made them make all these lifestyle changes in terms of reducing their exposure to plastics, controlling their heat exposure. Heat exposure is very important for sperm production, actually. There's a reason why testes are in a scrotum and have to be thermoregulated. So, if you're putting a laptop directly on it and sitting in a sauna every two days, Your sperm are gonna know about it. So they made them do all these things and change their lifestyles basically. And three months later they did another sperm count and obviously unsurprisingly much better. And it's not just numbers as well. It's well, the technical term is morphology, but it's shape. It's it's not just good enough to know if they're there. They have to be functional. They really have they have a very active job to do, so they have to be in good
1: shape, literally. Back to women. What about hormones? I'm very curious to explore how do hormones impact ovarian reserve throughout life? Do they? And also as we unpack this, what I'm really curious about is whether stress or chronic stress in particular has an impact on ovarian reserve decline throughout the lifetime. Okay, that's really fascinating. So
0: there has to be a relationship between hormones and the ovarian reserve because we know that they talk to each other. When we talk about hormones, there's different parts of your body that produce different kinds of hormones. The big one here is there's a part of your brain that has a little gland underneath it called the pituitary. That gland secretes hormones that talk to your ovaries and say things like, hey, it's time to ovulate, for example. That's the big one. But there are other organs that also produce hormones like your adrenal glands that sit near your kidneys. They produce a lot of the stress hormones. And the thing about hormones is They are produced in certain places, but they go into the blood and they are picked up by all the cells in your body. It's like having a tannoy system in your body. Even if you're not going to do anything about it when you're in a shopping center and you hear the announcement, you hear the announcement, right? And I think of hormones a bit like that. Even if the message is, hi, this is a pituitary talking to your ovaries right now, everyone else knows what's going on. From that somewhat simplistic lens, I would be extremely surprised if there wasn't an impact of reproductive hormones, but also stress hormones in that context. Also, it's worth saying, it's known that high stress can alter ovulation. I think it's been shown that it can lead to a cessation of menstruation. It can also lead to premature ovulation. There's all kinds of strange things like that can happen. So the mechanisms through which they do that is, as far as I understand, not particularly well established. Like, how does that happen? We don't fully know, but I would be extremely surprised if there wasn't something there. Let's put it that way. Folliculogenesis, so the growing of follicles to get them ready for ovulation, that's a very energy dependent, that's demanding, right? It's a lot of energy you have to put into it. So the food you eat, the kinds of things that you eat will inevitably impact that. It also does that in many different organisms. So we know that if you don't feed animals appropriately, they'll stop. They'll stop being able to reproduce. We also know if you feed them more, they're more likely they'll speed up to some extent, right? Mm. Like we can induce effectively induce earlier puberty in animals, in livestock and things by feeding them more when they're young, because you just get them ready. If they're fed well, they're fed well, and we see that in like human populations. As I said, the timing of first menses is getting younger and younger because it's happening in cultures where. Children have access to more and more food. There's a relationship between food and environmental conditions and reproduction. That's like you see that throughout the entire animal kingdom. Here's another thing that I think is really important is the fact that, yeah, okay, human beings, we've isolated ourselves a lot from our environment,
1: but we're still animals,
0: like ultimately.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting to look at other animals and organisms and just see how nature has handled the same puzzles. In different creatures differently. It's fascinating. It's utterly wild. At last week, I learned that there are, this is, seriously
0: hold my beer, this is some of the craziest things I've ever heard in my life. I don't know why I'd never thought about it either, but there are certain types of fish that, and like sharks, that basically have placentas and grow their babies inside of them And it's not a placenta as you would think of it directly in the exact same structural way, but they carry their live young inside of them until they're ready to go. And they have structures which allow them to interface with their young. I mean, fish, just take a moment to appreciate that. Just what? That's amazing. You just don't think of it. This is the thing. It's so easy to fall into this really hierarchical thinking of like, you know, we are the pinnacle of evolution. We're not at all We're not at all. We're just another branch on this tree. And exactly as you said it so eloquently, there are so many different solutions to the same problems that we're all facing, basically. And we get all snobby about it. But ultimately, even fish are having these problems like, oh, how am I going to get my babies to stay alive? I guess I'll keep them inside myself and better have a placenta or something like that's Yeah, I should be more empathetic.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, nature teaches us quite some lessons, doesn't it? What do you think actually our understanding of ovaries and our reproductive system tell us about things like nature, evolution, life? Is there something, you know, everything is fractal, right? So is there something that you learn by studying how sex is determined or what influences follicles that helps us to understand or learn something bigger about universe in general? I love that. I think
0: In some senses, I've started to think more and more, you know what, I'm really not that different. We are not that different to everything else on earth. But that leads to something a bit more uncomfortable, which for me has been the biggest thing that I take away from my studies, which is there's nothing special about us. If it's DNA and genes in every other organism, it's probably DNA and genes in us too. And it feels so uncomfortable because my experience of being a human being, is some sense of control. I feel like that's something that we tell ourselves. We're humans. We are in control of our destiny. We build things. We work in communities. We achieve things that other organisms can't. And all those things are true. But the uncomfortable thing that keeps coming to me is that we have to work with what nature and biology gives us. And yeah, in some ways we transcend it, And I think for me, the big thing that I'm trying to work towards, at least, is it's like an acceptance, right? It's, yeah, you know what? It's possible. It's possible that biology and my genes have dealt me a set of cards. I don't get any say in that. That's just how it is. I can't really change much of it for myself. I can just do the best that I can with it and do my best for the next people that come after me. And that's okay. That I'm not any less for it, that I don't have to look down on any other organism because it's not quite, no, we're all in this same boat together. I think
1: that would be my big picture lesson. I love that. Next kind of existential question, are male and female brains different?
0: I see you're trying to ruin my career. (laughs) No, I'm joking. That's a really interesting question is what that is. I will say what I'm about to say based on the few papers that I have read and from the conversations that I have had with neuroscientists that I have been exposed to. As best as I understand it, there are some structural differences. So in terms of the relative proportions of different gray versus white matter or something. There are some differences. I have also heard people say that there are absolutely no differences. I have heard people say that there are functional behavioral differences that emerge. And I've also heard people say that there are no functional um, behavioral differences between them. My boss once said this really casually in passing. It's one of those little pleasures of life of being surrounded by wise scientists is sometimes they'll just share a piece of knowledge without ever realizing that it's like completely new to everyone else in the room. This was the thing that he said casually. So remember I told you during sex determination, those cells, they go to the sex chromosomes. And if they have a Y chromosome, they're like, okay, I have a Y chromosome. Well, what actually happens in that moment is on the Y chromosome, there is a gene called SRY. The sex determining region on the Y chromosome. S-R-Y. That's why it's called that. This gene comes on and it comes on very briefly and that's the signal. It's like a flare. It says, hello, there's a Y chromosome here and those cells go on and listen and they do their thing there. And he just said casually, well, of course, S-R-Y, the gene, is expressed, so the protein is made, also in the brain during development. And I remember just thinking, excuse me, hang on a minute. How does that work with All the narratives that you hear about how there's no differences at all between males and females and all that kind of thing. Now, whether or not a gene being there doing something really translates into something extremely meaningful in later life, I can't comment upon. But what I can tell you is the Y chromosome that sets males apart from females is also expressed in the brain at certain points during development.
1: Make of that what you will, I would say. I like that answer. Very purist, very genetically purist. (laughs) But I think it's such a difficult question, actually, because it's not just about genetics, right? It's not just about sex. It's not just about biology. There's also these cultural influences, and so many of them we're actually trying to untangle. So it gets into that conversation as well. But I do find it really fascinating. If there are differences, and if it is true, what can we learn from that? And how can we apply it everywhere else for benefits of women? Yeah,
0: Why do we think that hormones that talk to all of the cells of the body wouldn't talk to the cells of the brain? We know, in fact, recent work out of my own research institute has shown that pregnancy leads to changes in the neural circuits of female mice, right? So that they have the appropriate behaviors to care for their pups. Why? Why? Let me ask the question in this way, okay? Why wouldn't there be differences there? Yeah, I agree. What I will say about this is, I think it comes back to my point that I just made before about the big picture. I think something that people find very difficult and like me included within it is this feeling of like, it's about control, right? Am I just a passenger to my biology? I don't like that feeling. That feels uncomfortable. And I think that interfaces very strongly with this question about male and female brains because it feels if you accept that male and female brains might be different from each other. They might have slightly different strength. And inevitably, we're talking about minor differences here. They could, if they are there, what does that mean for me? I think is how most people feel. And then it feels, if can feel like a burden or some kind of curse or something. Also, by the way, you'll note that the reaction is always somehow normative to the male brain as if you accept that there's a difference between them it somehow automatically means that the female brain is lesser somehow i'm just going to point that little logical issue out here but the more you study biology the more you see these kind of things the more you have to get comfortable with the fact that the value of this thing is determined by the value that we give it that's it like diversity of existence is The reality. I am not the same as you biologically, even if we are 99.99% the same. And that's okay. And I can't be upset about the fact that we're similar. And I shouldn't really feel anything about it. Like it's just an observation. Like speaking very much personally for myself right now in this moment, genuinely as a human being. If tomorrow somehow, It turned out we managed to solve all of these things in biology and they turned around and they addressed all of the questions that we've been asking each other during the course of this conversation. And someone said, okay, hey, Ganesh, this is how it goes. Okay, this is what happens here, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and yes, by the way, we figured it out. Male and female brains are actually different. And this is what that means. You will do this. That's going to be different to that. Different is just different. That's it. Different is just different. What you do with that information, how you value that information, what you use that for is actually determined by your goals, your morals, your value systems. That's it. It's just it. It's just difference. So actually it doesn't make it like, so what should be the answer? They probably are. So what? What does that mean? What do we want to do with that? I think those are more important questions. And I think that people's fear of finding
1: out is actually what stifles the conversation more often than not. That's such a good point. I can totally see how it would stifle research into this topic. I also find it a bit interesting that when I talk to entrepreneurs or people in the startup ecosystem about this issue or this topic of female and male brains, It's a very different conversation because there's this renaissance, there's this embracing that female anatomy is different. We have different hormones throughout our lifetime, throughout the month, and that affects the brain and we should embrace it and actually build solutions that are precise and more applicable for female body and the female brain. And it feels like every time I bring this topic up in like scientific and academic community, it feels much more controversial. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's to do with the
0: narratives that we each get told. If you were just talking in a group of scientists, I think it would be a very different thing. The issue is when you're asked as a scientist to talk outwards of your community, then you, then I even I made a joke about it. I was like, oh, great, this is when my career ends, right? Because this is the narrative that we're told, that if you dare question this in any way, that mm. somehow there's going to be There's just a sense that there's going to be some kind of negative consequence, basically.
1: What do you think about the future of reproductive technology? Like, where are we heading? And if you had a crystal ball, if you had to make predictions, where do you think we're going to be in the future, 10 years or 20 years from now, for better or worse? I worry about this all the time.
0: I think that there's two aspects to this. I think there's like the knowledge and the technology, and then I think there's the dialogue and the wider conversation about it. And for me, that is the division of the things. In terms of the science and the technology, I think within 20 years, we are going to be able to achieve all the things that we loosely talked about here. I think it's going to be possible to make eggs and sperm or very close to those things in a dish i think we're going to have made massive progress towards building structures that allow us to incubate embryos for the later stages of pregnancy to help with premature babies and things like that i have huge hopes for where reproductive technologies will be in in 20 years time we need new types of contraceptives we need new ways of making babies looking after babies managing hormonal context for adults that are alive right now and making sure that they have good health quality about aging. There's so many different aspects to this thing, and I think all of them will have developed. And I am an incurable optimist. I think the thing that's going to slow us down the most actually is the conversations and the comfort with which we have them. And this actually relates to the, the what we were just saying before, which is you can't talk about reproduction if you don't acknowledge the fact that we are a dimorphic species, that it takes eggs and sperm typically, and that's how the baseline has been established. That there are two parents, normally, one is male, one is female. That's how life is made. That's how life is made for many organisms. Any animal that you register as being an animal most likely is using that model of generating new life. And if you can't talk about that honestly, I think you have a problem when it comes to talking about the future of technological solutions for addressing that. And there are certain subjects within our wider cultural sphere that have made talking about this subject very difficult at times. And so that for me is the the biggest concerning factor and simultaneously my biggest hope.
1: Do you think artificial wombs could be a reality in the next 20 years? I think that A form of the artificial womb may well be. I
0: think it would be a surprise if we don't have a situation where premature babies, so the very late stages of pregnancy, aren't being looked after. I think it might take substantially longer to actually build something that can incubate an embryo from a very small stage all the way. I think that's a huge engineering task, by the way. And do we really want to re-engineer the wheel? Like biology's done a good job here and it's taken millions of years to develop this thing. There's a certain amount of our hubris here again and being like, yeah, sure, whatever biology says, we can do this, we can make it again.
1: Yeah. I mean, also, I've been looking a little bit into artificial wombs recently, just because for whatever reason, the topic keeps coming up. And There's one thing that I learned, by no means being an expert in it, but honestly, there's one thing that I learned, which is that you have to decompartmentalize that term itself. So it's one thing to be talking about technology that's being developed for later stages of pregnancy to help, for example, with very premature births and things like that. And it's a very different conversation, like you say, to incubate life, especially at early stages. And when you say artificial womb, you could mean like you could mean an artificial womb at any point of the development. So I'm learning that, you know, you have to be very specific. It's not just this one thing that we're talking about. Definitely, definitely agreed with that. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. I truly enjoyed it. And if people wanted to follow you and your work and your research, Where should they go to stay on top of how your career and research develops in the coming years? Well, I have a website
0: and uh, all of my social media handles are all premised and predicated on my very unique name. So Ganesh Taylor on any platform where I'm found will almost certainly bring you to me. But my website is probably the best place I'm I do tweet a bit, but I don't know. It's one of those spaces. I'll always reply, though. That's the thing. So if you come talking to me, I'll definitely get back to you. That's not an issue. And I always have an open-door policy. I love hearing people's questions and people's thoughts. And if they have any after hearing this podcast, they're very welcome to reach out to me. Twitter, Instagram, website has an email contact box as well and yeah you never know where serendipitous conversations lead you thank you for having me i've genuinely enjoyed talking to you about it and it's an undying pleasure i love this stuff and i think that i think that everyone would love it when they hear about it and thank you for giving me a chance to show people that it's not as off-putting and scary as it sounds you didn't turn away from me at the dinner party right when i said i was a scientist you didn't go oh my god I'm not speaking to her, which is what most people do. They always go, oh, I didn't do well at science at school and then walk away from the conversation. So,
1: yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to follow Mother Podcast and subscribe on the podcast app of your choice so that you don't miss any of the future episodes. See you soon.